0: Welcome back, guys, to episode 25 of the JPS, JPS podcast. And we're back where it all began with Dr. Eric Helms, PhD. Welcome, Eric.
1: <laughs> I like how you your front end <laughs> backloaded the doctor there. Dr. Eric Helms, PhD. <laughs> so to clarify, um, I do not have an MD and a PhD. That's just the same degree stated twice in my sentence. Yeah. <laughs>
0: For those of you who don't know who Eric is, I suggest you check out all of his work from the Muscle Strength Pyramids to his renowned work with the guys at 3DMJ, as well as his research review, Monthly Application of Strength Sports, aka Mass. Um, Eric is a researcher, author, coach, he's a rap king, and one of the leading experts in the fitness industry, and I'm privileged to have him back on the podcast. So welcome, Qually, and congrats on the PhD, man.
1: Happy to be back, man. Thank you so much. Much appreciated.
0: <laughs> Are we can the close or what? <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, in today's episode, I wanted to pick Eric's brain about all things nutrition and dig a little bit deeper into the underlying issues that both coaches and many of you may be facing when it comes to dieting for body composition and health. And we're not going to talk about the nuances of fat loss or muscle gain, but more importantly, the concepts and factors that cause maladaptive eating and how we can address these for dieting success. I also wanted to talk about Eric's model of implementing a flexible diet and something that many of you may be familiar with um, and review that, as well as talk about the industry as a whole. So, Eric, do you want to talk to the guys about you know the primary factors that contribute to maladaptive eating and why this is important, and what adaptive eating is, and why we should strive for that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't typically use those specific terms. um, But certainly, I think um, most people want to know, like, why is it that if I just eat, if I just do my thing, do I get obese, you know, or why can't I be the the body composition or body weight I want to be? Uh, And if we kind of keep that in terms of A healthy body weight and not thinking about it from the kind of Instagram six-pack abs kind of perspective then it's easier to talk about um, Because there's a whole other set of maladaptive behaviors of people trying to maintain too low of body weight, but um See I think uh, the the big contributors as far as why Why is the obesity epidemic here? Why are people struggling to maintain healthy body weights that at much in higher and increasing uh, rates? is that it's kind of the natural, it's the natural outcome. It's the success of a modern society, basically, as we make food availability higher in first world nations, we make the cost of access lower, uh, and we reduce the amount of energy we have to expend to get it. So the, the cost of energy to get food, the ease of access, you know, everything that our entire biology, I would say, is driven towards survival. Uh, and that's the reason why we, started agriculture. That's the reason why we've, you know, continually increased our, our medical advances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now we've kind of won, you know, at least in the first world, we've we've succeeded. Uh, you can get, even if you're, you're quite poor in terms of a first world nation, which means you're, you know, still richer than 95% of people in the world, uh, you can get high calorie, tasty food at a low cost anytime you want, 24-7. Uh, it's probably the most obvious in the States where we have the biggest problem. And we have highly palatable food, Uh, So if you just kind of eat hedonistically, or just basically by your desires, that for most people uh, will result in slow, steady weight gain that may result in being overweight by the time you're middle age, or maybe even obese by the time you're a teenager, depending on uh, your biology and the uh, sociological interactions you have and and your familiar familiar history, etc. So it's a multifaceted kind of uh, set of problems. Um, So... Yeah, I, I know you, you'd you said in the preamble before we actually got on the recording, that you want to talk about three specific causes. And it may be that you've read a paper that you're assuming I've read. But if you want to go over those three, feel free. But I think there's there's many causes to maladaptive eating. But it might be good to bring those up if you wanted to.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, but obviously there's a lot more than three. Um, but I wanted to talk specifically about education before going into know, what causes these things. So you've stated that education of the fundamental concepts of nutrition is key to dieting success. So obviously we have all these environmental factors, you know, socioeconomic factors and our biology is like driving us to overconsume. But what do you see to be the issue with how people are educated in terms of nutrition? And like, what steps can we take to improve this? Because there's so much that needs to be improved.
1: Yeah. So I think that that's, that's the big thing is that if you look at most, most information sources for nutrition, um, tend to be gimmicky and they tend to be unhelpful. Um, they tend to give sound bites. Um, and the most common complaint I hear of people who first get exposed to fitness is that everything seems contradictory. Um, everyone seems to have the, the silver bullet that's going to be the solution. Um, And they end up in this state of kind of uh, paralysis by overanalysis, which is almost kind of where you have to go because there's so many sound bites and nothing is given any kind of sense of priority. And unless you have a really good ability early on to discern between, you know, logic, science, and um, you know, rational thinking, and have some basic understanding of nutrition, you're really going to be shit out of luck. It's trying to as far as trying to find a roadmap to success that's sustainable you might be able to find a roadmap to success for losing weight in the short term. In fact, that's really common. Uh, Most people who are struggling with obesity have at some point lost 30 pounds, or 20 pounds, or 15 pounds, uh, 10 kilos, you know. Um, But they can't keep it off because it's some fad diet, or crash diet, or something that requires them to cut out an entire macronutrient group, or or common food group, and they're not really left with any kind of sustainable approach. So I think you know the first step uh, in, in any nutrition plan has to be some baseline level of education. Um, and I don't mean you need to take freaking course that t- tells you like, where is protein digested? Is that the stomach or the small intestine? And, you know, what, what is the, you know, actual biochemical processes by which we liberate energy from, you know, from food. Uh, more so I just mean like, okay, what is a food label? Uh, do we understand calories in, calories out? Do we understand, you know, the components of energy expenditure and do we understand the macronutrients and then what foods tend to dominate which macronutrients and i think i think that basic level of understanding of going right so i need a certain amount of protein to help me maintain muscle mass carbohydrate helps me for exercise based energy fat for other types of energy and health and you know if i consume more total energy than i expend i'll gain weight and if i do less i'll lose weight and calories come from macronutrients just that baseline level and then the actual Experiential knowledge of tracking food, you know getting on my fitness pal looking at the back of food labels learning to cook some basic meals um, You know how to weigh foods know that you can hit the, the tear button and you know level it out and start with zero grams like all that basic kind of um, Experiential knowledge I'll say of of Going through the process of tracking and, and learning about food and taking that kind of basic theory that you might give someone uh, is, is a requirement before someone can really have much agency uh, in in manipulating their their body composition, um, and then you run into a whole other can of worms: is how far that manipulation should be taken, and does that become too obsessive, et cetera, Which is, you know, something I I I, I know you interact with a lot as working with physique athletes and weight class restricted strength athletes.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely. Like, obviously, nutrition, nutrition is that you know fundamental first step, and teaching people should be something that we always strive to do when we're coaching people about nutrition. But do you think that there's also a place before that um, to teach people to become more self-aware and you know, introspection to be a priority before we even worry about calories and macros? Because often, again, this is just information and it's not addressing those underlying issues. Do you think there's a place for that before we go to address the diet
1: well yeah this is a number of things that they kind of come into an interplay here like if we think about you know the stages of motivation um you know fitness professionals we're not going to get people in the in the complete pre-contemplation phase where either they don't think there's value in changing or they have zero desire to change we normally get them in the the preparation of the contemplation stages right um so contemplation being uh, there might be some value here let me think about making a positive change and that's the point where that kind of overload of information can, can can become discouraging or at least it's not helpful. So I think certainly when they're in that position giving them a ton of information is not really useful unless they're a highly analytical person, you know. Um more often I would say some self-awareness is is valuable there, helping them understand what their why is. You know, if you were looking at this from kind of a motivational interviewing perspective, you've got someone there who's trying to they're contemplating whether or not they want to change their lifestyle, but they're not ready to actually start acting. Um, a good way to help them move forward is to help them understand why are you even contemplating this in the first place? You know, what's the value uh, that, that, that changing your life has for you? Is that that you get to actually, you know, play with your grandkids? You know, be around to see your kids have your grandkids? You know, is that getting off medication? Is that feeling healthier and happier? Is that looking in the mirror and not self-judging as much? You know, it's it totally depends on the individual, um, and I think, yeah, a ton of that is is figuring out what is kind of your center of that golden circle. What's your why? Why do you want to do this? What what's the value? And that I think some guided introspection can be very helpful at that stage, uh, and then from the mindfulness side of it if someone is is in that kind of preparation phase, that the first thing that I do, this is going to kind of segue into the conversation about the system I tend to use to get people from point A to uh, eventually, you know, uh, a habitual change in their life that they don't have to think much about while they're maintaining a healthier weight or a healthier body composition, um, is I blend mindfulness with food tracking. So instead of actually manipulating diet, I'll have them just start tracking their diet. So they get that experiential knowledge, um, like I was talking about of what it's like to weigh and track their food and write things down and use MyFitnessPal. But I'll also have them log things, and I would advise this to fitness professionals especially, because I don't do this as much with, say, a bodybuilder, but um, advising them to think about when do they eat, why do they eat, what were they thinking, what were they feeling when they ate, Uh, when they overate, what were they thinking, feeling, and how do they react to it, and what were the triggers and stimuli, so they can get an idea of, of what they do. And there's also a lot to be learned through this initial first stage where I am, you know, if I'm, if I'm in the role of the personal trainer, I'm giving them the basic education about nutrition and I'm encouraging them to track and log and journal both their thoughts, their feelings, the situations, and their reactions, but also just actually writing down their foods without manipulating anything. Um, and I think that that's key at this stage because some things will typically happen. People will, will often lose weight um, during this phase. And that often tells you that there's a lot of um, mindful eating, or sorry, mindless eating. So mindfulness will be helpful. Um, Once, as soon as they start paying attention, they stop over-consuming as much. Maybe they're not going to have that that donut at work. And that can come from a number of reasons. It might just be mindfulness, or it might be just that now that someone else is watching, uh, they, they, yeah, the accountability can be there. So that, that can tell you, so immediately that tells you a couple things. Okay developing some level of self accountability or increasing mindfulness is going to be a huge, you know, potential key to success for this person. Um, if nothing changes, but they still track and they go, right, yeah, I haven't lost any weight. Nothing's changed. I track my food. Great. Then it might be literally just the, the foods that they see as normal, acceptable and the, the, the portion sizes and all that just don't match up with what will result in a, you know, a healthier body weight or healthier body composition. Um, and that becomes a, more of a straightforward process. It's right. It's like, hey, did you know that the peanut butter you consume has this many calories? Did you know nuts are not a good source of protein? Were you aware that when you go out to eat at uh, the Chinese food place and you think you're eating you know, a nice healthy meal, that's actually 2,000 calories? Uh, and then, okay, so what are some useful replacements, et cetera, and you know, how can we make those changes? So that first phase, it teaches them a lot, but if it teaches you as a, as a mentor to them a ton too as about whatever the potential – pathways to success. It also teaches you whether or not, in my opinion, um, they're ready. Uh, now there's a lot of debate around this, and this is actually the golden, the golden question in in personal training is how do you get people to follow a plan and at what point is the onus on the trainer and what point is the onus on the client? And I think coming from a bodybuilding background, I used to have that bar way too high for putting the onus. Or way too low, I should say, putting the onus on the on the client. I would give them, in my mind, what seemed like an easy ask. You know, just track all your food, weigh it all every day, don't go out to eat, don't drink, and you know, hit a high protein diet and totally change your life. And if you can't do that, you're lazy. Um, and that was <laughs> a ridiculous position I used to have. Um, I think. Is much, you have to draw the line in the sand somewhere. That That's the reality. Because there are people who are coming to you when they're in the contemplation, the preparation stage, and they're looking to basically purchase from you the action stage instead of mm. making that commitment themselves. So the line in the sand that I draw, and it may not be appropriate for everyone, as an online fitness coach who primarily works with athletes, but I, I do work with other people sometimes, um, is if you can track and, and log and journal the stuff for for two weeks, and you give me at least five days out of seven, two weeks in a row, if you give me 10 out of 14 days, uh, and maybe if nine, we can negotiate and still work together. Great, we can move forward. But if, you know, you come back to me two weeks later, and you go, I haven't logged a single thing, like not even one day. And I just, you know, haven't, I haven't had the motivation to do it. I'm not going to sit there and judge you or say that, you know, your life's your fault, and you're a piece of shit. But I'm going to go right, you know, it's probably good that we haven't moved forward to the next stage, because would have been a waste of my time, a waste of your money. Um, and you're just going to beat yourself up. But I do think maybe you need to do some more introspection, do a little more research, and really kind of reassess what your goals are. But you're not quite ready to hire me. And I think that's where that line in the sand is. T- where to put that line in the sand is tough. Something each trainer has to figure out on their own. But putting it either too low or too high has negative consequences. Putting it too low can lead to a lot of frustration and and senses of failure and, and even burnout. You know, kind of having like that. Mm-hmm. Compassion fatigue like if you take on a lot of people who aren't going to change no matter what you do It's so easy to either put that on yourself or just get fed up with people and be like, you know what, you know The obesity epidemic is insurmountable. and There's nothing I can do Um, On the other side of it you could have been like me and you there's only like a very select few people who will actually succeed with you And then you're just ineffective as a trainer is a global sense And it's probably better that you go start like a you know a bodybuilding coaching company or something like that so (laughs)
0: There's a lot of really good points there. And yeah, I, I guess managing expectations for coaches is one of the biggest uh, things that they need to address from the onset. And back to like, learning about nutrition, you know, you've know, you said to me in the past that you know, we have to learn how to move the wrong way to know what the right way is. And yeah. like a child touching a hot stove to find out whether or not it's hot, despite their parents telling him, don't touch it, it's hot, do people need to learn the hard way? with nutrition to be able to find that better path? Because even you and I fell into the evidence-based community because we've had such a shit experience. Do you think people need to have a tough run, so to speak? I
1: think, I think an easy way to answer that uh, is that making errors is part and parcel of learning. Mm -hmm. Um, And what those errors look like are going to be different for everybody, whether you're starting as a, a bodybuilder trying to get shredded or whether you've never been exposed to anything fitness related and your doctor had that come to Jesus moment and said, look, you need to change your life and you need to do this. I want you to go hire a personal trainer, check this guy out. You know, if you're in Melbourne, go check out JPS fitness kind of thing. Um, yeah, no worries. Um, so, I mean, no, it, it totally depends on where, where your starting point is. So the, you know, the errors for someone who's coming into the, the bodybuilding community like like you and I might be that we are following overly rigid advice from you know top level mister Olympia competitors you know mm-hmm. um and that 's going to have its own unique flavor where we slowly like you said get into the evidence based community and start to realize that you know foods aren 't inherently good or bad that it 's more about the nutrients they contain, but that 's a very different position to start from than the um the person who gets diagnosed with type two diabetes and their first exposure is you know Dr. Oz or something like mm-hmm. that um so I think invariably um, putting forth effort when you have very little or poor guidance is going to result in errors and they're going to prompt further changes. And depending on how, how severe those errors were, how obvious they are, and how uh, near-term or far-term those consequences are will, will will prompt change and accelerate the learning process or be a part of the learning process at different paces. You know, if you if you do something crazy drastic immediately and this is very much dependent on temperament and education like if you go on a you know just a grapefruit diet and you're just eating grapefruit only and nothing else you're going to feel like crap really quickly you'll lose weight and you will realize it doesn't work uh, at least not sustainably come into it like you and i did you might get a couple seasons under your belt still succeed on stage and just realize you know i'm I'm not happy or this is negatively affecting other parts of my life Uh, and you settle into some level of figuring it out as a bodybuilder Um, which at least might work for you. So I, I think, I think the simple answer is yes. What those errors look like, or those mistakes look like, or going down or doing it wrong uh, looks like is going to be very different. But I think, I think you're a hundred percent correct that you have to go through phases of not knowing what you're doing to like, like ignorance is a part of learning. You know, that's, I think there's some quote out there that, you know, Knowledge is the child of confusion or something like that, you know, and I think that 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 platitude holds holds pretty true in all facets of life
0: Yeah, you bring up a lot of really good points there and like we mentioned, you know Some form of restraints is what people are trying to achieve through dieting especially if they're looking to manage their body composition health They need to be consciously controlling food intake and it's either flexible or rigid Can you explain Mm -hmm. to listeners? the different types of restraint and how they affect health and physique outcomes.
1: That's, yeah, great point. Yeah, so yeah, restraint is a, uh, a, an aspect of temperament that has been investigated pretty substantially by uh, different food behavior researchers, um, and it's pretty much a requirement at some stage. There's no way of getting around it. You have to restrain yourself in some way, and there's a lot of ways to do that, to get lifestyle change. <clears throat> Even if you're doing things like environmental modification, like you know, like it's important to point out that people who think they have really good willpower typically are just better at managing their environment. Uh, they are able to draw those um, you know hard lines in their brain of what the rules are, and they you know won't go out to eat, they won't go to certain social social functions, they won't buy certain food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they actually have less opportunities to fail. Uh, while people who typically think they don't have very good willpower don't manage their environment very well, and there's just you know, you take a hundred at bats, you're going to hit a home run once, and it's kind of the flip negative side of that that eventually you're going to, you know, make make a bad decision and your lifestyle won't change the way you want it to. So, whether your restraint is obvious and that you're just literally just kind of going on a, a true kind of willpower uh, push, uh, or you're modifying. Your, your life so you don't have to, to, to really restrain yourself on a regular basis. Restraint is involved, either in the here and now or in the, the change of your environment or a combination of the two, which is most common. Um, so restraint's not the problem. Uh, and the reason why uh, some researchers in the late 90s tried to differentiate between types of restraint is that they found divergent results in people with high restraint levels. Some people seemed to really succeed, some people didn't, and they had the hypothesis that there was different types of restraint. And like you and I were talking to before we hit record, there's a lot of shared variance. Basically, to the layman, there's a lot of shared personality traits and qualities between these two types of restraint. But they are distinct enough that they result in different outcomes. So um, the difference is either whether you have flexible or rigid restraint. And the moderating variable, the the thing that seems to separate uh, separate them the most, is basically dichotomous thinking or thinking binary or thinking in black and white. So if you are someone who sees yourself as either on or off the diet, or if you are someone who sees foods either good or bad, that is basically a rough kind of description for what a rigid restraint model would be. Unfortunately, people with that rigid restraint model more often are unsuccessful at weight loss, unsuccessful at long term maintenance of weight loss, I should say, uh, tend to have more body image issues, uh, food disordered eating related issues. Uh, and are in general just more dissatisfied with their progress and don't make as much. Um, While people who have a flexible model, which is they don't see food in those kind of dichotomous terms, uh, they will often do things like uh, if they overeat in one meal, they will pull back in the next meal or in multiple days, uh, versus the kind of the black and white mentality might be, oh, I overate at breakfast, so screw it. The day is over because the, the the diet is it was either good or bad. It started off bad, so it doesn't matter what I do. It's only into two categories: either succeed or fail. Some might as well just eat pizza in my tears, you know. Um, so I think you can see why one is going to prompt more success. Is that it's your less? It's less a rigid restraint mindset is less forgiving to mistakes, and it creates expectations that one can't uphold because uh, it doesn't allow any inclusion of quote unquote bad foods. Uh, which, you know, if you're trying to change your life, that's going to be a large portion of the food you previously ate. That's why, you know, if you're looking for lifestyle change. While someone with a flexible restraint is thinking more about reducing the portion sizes of foods that they enjoy, but they know are high in calories or are trigger foods for them, uh, or they are going right. So if I tend to eat a lot of dinner, I'm just going to eat less at breakfast and, and, and lunch, that kind of thing. So they have there, I imagine there, if they were to investigate it more, there might even be moderating variables around nutritional education and understanding of calories in calories out versus kind of, you know, good or bad food mentality, which I think is a very normal thing. I mean, there are studies where they will show, um, they'll show pictures of food to people, and they'll take a meal and they'll add something to it, like a salad or a vegetable, and people will rate that meal as lower calories so they're seeing the basically a yeah, yeah, so it's kind of the zero-sum game of good foods and bad foods, and the good foods actually take away from the bad foods you eat uh, instead of kind of being able to look at everything as an energy budget and foods that are either higher or lower in calories. Uh, so there, there may be a, um, a component of education that goes into this as well, but I actually haven't seen any research on that. It's probably something that needs to be done.
0: Yeah, cool. And despite the literature supporting you know, the benefits of flexible dietary restraint. You know, as we've discussed, is there a time and place for rigid restraint? Yeah, I think I
1: it can be presented that way. Like, like in, in the model I use where you start with that first phase of tracking, then the next phase is, um, I would say, a nutrition plan with more constraints. Because it doesn't necessarily have to be rigid per se, but it's quite intimidating if you uh, are first trying to make changes to your nutrition to be told you can eat whatever you want. You just have to, you know, fulfill this protein and calorie requirement, even that kind of like that minimum level of quantitative information. It's like, well, shit, I don't, I don't, I've only learned about foods like last week. I, I don't even know what foods are high in protein that are also low in calories. And then, you know, how do I know this? How do I know that? Like there's too much flexibility. Um, you know, there was a, an episode of, of star talk that is, uh, Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh, podcast, where he was talking about the the Mars project of trying to potentially land on Mars, and he was talking about how um, restraint, or rather constraints, are very useful to engineers, mm-hmm. uh, and that the way uh, that engineers are able to make progress is they know the parameters with which they can operate in. they've got a budget. They've got a weight constraint. They've got a payload. You know, they know exactly the thrust of the rocket. They have to break the Earth's atmosphere. So they they have certain things that they know they have to operate within, and then it allows them to make decisions. But you give them an unlimited budget and unlimited space requirements, and they'll never stop planning. You know, it's kind of the thing. So it it prevents action. So I think Mm -hmm. when someone is still learning things, it's useful to, um, in an instructive and intentional way, give them a more constrained eating Um, strategy. So what I typically do after the first phase where someone is just tracked and diaried and they understand their motivations and they understand what their current behavior is and that gives me that information that I was talking about earlier whether it's a mindfulness issue or just an education issue uh, or etc. Then the next phase is I go right I'd like you to write write yourself a meal plan to hit these targets and I'll give them a calorie calorie range and a protein range that's typically where I start and then we can sit down together and they're still in, still in the driver's seat. I'll sit next to them or, or talk to them over, over online or whatever and talk them through the process of trying to fit the foods that they eat as much as their normal behavior that we, we have that has structure to it. We can keep and translate that into like two or three, maybe four meal plans that they can follow. And I think it's very important that they write them, them themselves. Uh, most, most often people will look well, to hire you to give them a meal plan and that really removes a huge potential opportunity for learning where you have to sit there and actually figure out how to fit the foods you like, uh, into your day in, in kind of a way that makes sense that you look at it and you go, yeah, that's doable, you know, and, and learning simple things like how, okay, what cuts of meat are leaner or how to, okay, if I need to cut some fat, but keep my protein, oh, I can go with low fat dairy. Got it. Um, or okay, what fruits are high in, in 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 fiber and and have a lot of you know weight to them, but are low in calories. So oh, I can use berries. That's great. And now I can keep my calorie intake down, but still have you know breakfast with a fruit which I like or whatever. I think um, going through that whole process of fitting on your own uh, foods to numbers is very instructive, and it helps you to start see the uh, the energy intake of, of foods, and um, seeing how you can plug and play them into your daily life, and then. Uh, I think that phase needs to last as long as it needs to last where you're you're writing down your own nutrition plans and you're following it and most often I find that the person will start to because you don't the, the key is to not place that that moral burden on them that people often place on themselves when they're eating rigidly it's that orthorexic kind of approach of I don't eat these bad foods because I'm I rate myself and I rate others morally on what food do they eat you know, that I'm part of this community, we eat this way, we see people who don't eat this way as is, is irresponsible, unhealthy, or uninformed, or ignorant, right? Um, but if you just say, hey, here's a useful system, and we're going to try to fit these foods in, and it doesn't have any moral attachments to it, they know that we're just creating a system to hit these target numbers, right? Sure, it's constrained. Sure, I want them to follow the plan. But they know the purpose behind it, instead of going, right, these are good foods and bad foods. So what will often naturally happen is that they'll get tired of having a banana with lunch and they'll swap it an apple or they'll, they'll change their on the fly. They'll change their dinner to something that is the same calories and same protein or gets in the same place at the end of the day. Um, but swaps out foods. And at that point, you know, Hey, guess what? You're ready to move on to the next phase because you're doing it naturally. And the next phase that I like to do is, Hey, can we hit these, this, these protein ranges and these calorie ranges without a plan? At least sometimes. Cause some people like to plan, which is fine. Some people like to do their cooking on Sunday and they, it works with their time and their schedule, and you know they're they're busy. That's great, but the ability to be able to go on holiday, or the ability to have a friend come out of town and still, you know, eat within kind of the ballpark of of their of their overall game plan and lifestyle change. That's an absolute must. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some studies showing the majority of weight that Americans gain occurs almost completely from, you know, Halloween to Thanksgiving to Christmas to New Year's. You know, and that three month period is where like three fourths of the weight gain they get each year is. So there's, uh, there's, there's, there's a really important need for someone to have that ability to pivot. Uh, that I think you can only get to once you've had that restrained or I'd say constrained period uh, of eating within an operational system. And then once you start to naturally exceed those constraints, because you know how to still meet the target goals with, with less restrictions, then awesome. You're ready to be more flexible. And that's a very useful skill too.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, Uh, In my experience, like, a lot of people, even though we're improving their nutritional knowledge, we're implementing some constraints and their tracking and whatnot, they still have overconsumption, you know, and disinhibition based on, you know, whatever reason it is, like Halloween and things like this. They just don't know how to control that overconsumption. So what do you see to be, like, the ways that people can tackle this and learn how to deal with that because often it's not just putting constraints on people or teaching them about calories. There's deeper issues at play here.
1: Yeah, I mean sometimes there are very deep issues at play that that would 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 be best dealt with by actually having them uh, work with a therapist or a dietitian who has some some counseling skills around around nutrition. And I think this opens up a very important point is that. The a lot of the research on flexible and rigid restraint is done by eating disorder specialists and Many many times when I'm dealing with this issue We're walking a very fine border and I'm gonna speak specifically to my my uh, my experience primarily as a bodybuilding coach um, With this person might have a diagnosable eating disorder or could be very close or may have come from that background and They haven't told me about it yet and I think it's very important to know what your scope of practice is. You can't diagnose an eating disorder, but there's nothing to prevent you from actually reading what the diagnostic criteria are. And if you start to think that uh, perhaps you might be doing uh, the job that an eating disorder specialist should or a therapist should, and which could mean you're doing more harm than good, that's a point at which you need to have a, an honest and vulnerable conversation but compassionate conversation with your client to say, hey, you know, I think it would be really helpful to both of us to bring in someone who could specialize in this area. And I think that's a hard conversation to have because one, you have to kind of normalize it and you have to let the person know that there isn't judgment uh, that this is coming from a place of, I want to help you. Um, And I hope that's something we are doing with 3DMJ is, you know, by keeping that issue out in the air and open. It's not, it's not necessarily like you're you're a broken kind of thing. It's, it's more of, you know, this is a very common thing that happens in people who come to the sport and it's a real concern and if we care about the health and our mental well being, then we need to, you know, treat that just like we would any other kind of physical injury. Just like if it's you know, if we have a a mental injury, we need to we need to treat that with the same kind of uh gravitas that we do a physical one. So I have had a number of conversations over the years with clients where I've brought in a uh or or sometimes not successfully brought in. And then they go, Yeah, I'll think about that, but you know, thanks but no thanks and you know, that puts you in a tough position too. I often draw a line in the sand and I go, look, we can keep working together if you will also see someone in conjunction. Um, but that, that's a tough one. So yeah, when there's, when there's really deep seated issues, I think that's, that's sometimes when you, when you got to recognize the limits of your profession as a personal trainer.
0: Definitely, definitely. And moving back to your model of, implementing a flexible diet. We have dietary awareness, then we put some constraints on things and we start to make them more flexible um, and less structured and so forth. And towards the end you have habit-based eating and essentially we're trying to get people back to eating based on hunger and satiety. Um, That's right. So how do we get people to start to become more aware of this through the first three phases of learning? Because when people are eating by the numbers, they typically start to ignore their hunger and satiety. They're like, I just need to eat my macros. Um, you know, I need to eat this many calories. So is that something that should be common through all of the phases?
1: Yeah, that's. it's interesting. I think this is another one of those things that it depends on where you come from. I think bodybuilders tend to be the, the people who lose touch with their their signs of, of satiety or, and fullness or they get an unhealthy relationship with them. That's um, very common in bodybuilders for th- at some point during their prep to feel like uh, this isn't hard enough. Like I'm making progress and I'm not hungry. I think something's wrong. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten that email. Like, uh, you know, I see the scale going down, my, my, my the lifts are going well, but this like, I feel like at this stage it should be a lot harder. And yeah, they're, they're expecting something to be there. You know, if they're not hungry, they're not making progress emotionally, kind of that thing. Like uh, they feel like they have to be earning that progress. And it's understandable. It's not it's not just like this whole it, part of it is just kind of the masochistic mind of a bodybuilder, which I, I would clump myself into. Um, but it also just has to do with so much of that time period or so much of the story you read in the culture come from like, you know, the more you suffer, the more you succeed kind of thing. So that's, that's a big part of the bodybuilding culture. And to some degree, it, it seems to physically line up like you experience that. Uh, in many aspects of your prep, depending on how extreme your approach is. Um, so, as a bodybuilder, to succeed in the in the actual getting on stage process, you do have to kind of ignore, or at least find a way to not listen to your hunger signals to be successful. Uh, and if you find someone who's got on stage with shredded glutes, you can be damn sure that, or even not that lean, to be honest. Uh, any m- most divisions, so anyone who successfully got on stage in appropriate condition. Uh, they can tell you the strategies they use to avoid, uh, f- focusing on hunger. Maybe not necessarily, you can't really get away from it. It's always there, but it's whether that's staying busy or listening to podcasts or, or something to keep their mind off of it, or they eat this huge salad that takes them an hour to eat every night, you know, whatever, like you, you'll see all kinds of behaviors that are basically to deal with the constant burden of hunger to get there. Uh, and they are definitely not eating based on the signals of their body at a certain point. Uh, even the the more casual starts to preps that you've seen where people are just like, yeah, I just, if I just stay more satisfied at each meal, do, do a fair amount of cardio, up my protein and take up my vegetables, I know I can lose the first, you know, five kilos. It's like, right, but the last seven kilos that you have to lose, that really comes down to uh, just not listening to your body at all, which is, you know, quite contrary to what we tell people for health. Um, and it has to be you know, by the numbers for the most part. Um, so I think people from that background, um, it is a struggle to learn how to listen to the signals because they also, they, they get the opposite of reward post-competition if they listen to those signals again, because hunger comes back in full force times five, you know, at least. And it's not uncommon to see, see people regain everything they lost plus a few kilos within two, three months after a competition is over. Um, and that is, That's just basically proving to you, yeah, man, you really can't listen to your signals. you got to listen about the numbers. So I think that's a very common place that people come to. Um, And it wasn't that long ago where people thought, you know, if it fits your macros, kind of that stage three we were talking about would be the final stage. Um, But I think especially now that it's more common for bodybuilders to take longer off seasons and to not be competing year by year, uh, I think to get back to normal life and to to eat in a more healthy manner and to just be happier. I think that fourth phase becomes important where in an extended off season you make sure you get back to a point where you are eating based on your hunger signals and your and your and your fullness signals, signals because that is our natural homeostatic, you know, position. And a bodybuilder especially who has learned all this stuff about food and is very good at self-restraint uh and is probably going to have a healthy diet on the whole um could actually do just fine reincorporating those things especially when you've gone through multiple contest preps or even a single contest prep for months at a time where you were eating very rigidly, if you just allow that to occur naturally, you'll find that you've established a lot of habits. And I think one thing I try to do with my clients is I do a stepwise return to listening to those behaviors. So for example, at the tail end of prep, we might be hitting all three macros within 10 grams. Uh, and you know, then after the show's over, we'll move to calories and protein and you know i'll just say hey you know you can you can borrow some calories from from one day to the other if you're really really hungry on a certain day that's fine but don't go over say a 20% decrease on any day or increase on another day so you basically just back those restraints off a little bit um and reduce some of the rigidity and basically emphasize the feelings of hunger and satiety a little more and you're still going to be in a surplus like after a show's over there's no reason to have a of glutes so your the goal is to get to kind of a healthy off season low end body fat point, like say 10% for a male relatively quickly. And that alleviates a lot of those biological drives to eat a ton. And then, you know, once you get to there, once you're say, you know, five to 10% over stage weight, two months post show, that's when you can, you can really start to focus more on, on signals and just go, right, I'm going to, you know, try to get multiple servings of fruit and vegetables every day and get a protein source with each meal and just kind of eat based on hunger. And then, check in, you can do kind of these audits every once in a while to see like, am I still kind of in the ballpark of what makes sense for me quantitatively as an athlete? And most of the time you're going to find out, Oh yeah, I am, you know? Um, and that, that, that stage four looks different for everybody. Like for myself, I kind of keep a running tally of protein in my head cause if I don't I'll be under. So I try to make sure I get at least 1.6 grams per kg, but that's just one example. Some people it's like Alberto, he carries a jug of water around cause he, he won't consume water unless he's tracking it, that kind of thing. So yeah, that, that final phase for a bodybuilder especially is going to be a focus on a reincorporating, um, hunger and satiety. And I think for general pop, they never really stop focusing on it. Even in those initial first three stages, they need to be aware. And those are things you're logging and you're focusing on and you're becoming a, basically the distinction between hedonistic drive to eat and true hunger is what needs to be established. And I think in most general pot people who are struggling with their body weight, uh, the whole mindful, mindless eating, um, craving versus hunger, is a, they're very blurry lines. And they really have a tough time distinguishing between being stuffed and full and interested in food and bored or, or wanting to taste something and actual hunger. And the more you can kind of create this baseline level of I need to think about what I'm thinking about uh, when I eat – and become aware of my emotions around eating and the why's behind them eating. The more those those differences become clear, and then you could start using them as tools. Uh, but they have to be established first, and that probably occurs during those first three phases.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And something I wanted to ask you, Eric, was once an individual learns how to restrain, do you ever think that we can truly de-emphasize? That restraint, and even though we we transition into this more you know habitual automated you know eating behaviors, you know those ingrained thought processes of restraint um are they something that we can ever sort of de-emphasize enough that they're not problematic or are they simply a byproduct of being healthy and maximizing body composition and something we should just accept to be part and parcel with caring about our health?
1: That's a great question and um, basically it's the, it's the, the answer to that question is the reason why I don't call phase four intuitive eating. Uh, because I think, uh, intuitive eating implies that everyone, you know, cause intu- intuition is seen as something that we can all just listen to our, our inner, you know, whatever. And, and, um, I think that many times that's true, like maybe morally, I think that, that's, that's, that's a way to go. But when it comes to eating to something that is biological, um, your intuition, is obviously not something we can trust because are people's intuitions just getting progressively worse? Is that what's happening with the obesity epidemic? I don't think so. Um, I think intuition means, you know, truly listen to yourself and, and eat as you're guided. Uh, but the people who often are preaching intuitive eating are people who have gone through years of being in the fitness profession and field and maybe used to have eating disorder or maybe used to be really strict or competitive athletes, et cetera. So what we're really talking about is a habituated lifestyle change. It's uh, you've made substantial changes to the way you eat and live and you don't have to think about them anymore. They're just a part of your life. And the distinction almost doesn't matter whether or not like kind of, kind of what you asked is um, it's all about perception. Are you happy and is it sustainable? Uh, Whether or not you are actually restrained, but you just don't think about it. And it's just something you do naturally, and you're happy, or whether you've, you know, changed the wiring in your brain, and you, this is just the way you are now, and your your settling point is lower. The distinction in the functional sense doesn't matter. We can leave that to the, you know, behaviorists and neuroscientists, in my opinion. Um, but you, the the goal is to get to a place where without, or with a, a sustainable level of effort, a lifetime sustainable level of effort. So it might not even be that noticeable. Uh, the kind of like the same level of effort you put into brushing your teeth every night is kind of what I'm talking about. Um, you are able to maintain a body that is healthy. Um, and notice I didn't say a body you are necessarily like happy with, mm. because I think for depending on where you came from, again, a lot of people who, you know, their fitness inspiration comes from Instagram and you know people who are fitness models and bodybuilders, they have unreal unrealistic goals and they're trying to get to this place of a habituated lifestyle change that includes having veins in their abs. And that just may not be possible. Like that's just simply, you can maintain that if you stay living by the numbers and you maintain a contest prep like diet all year round, which I don't think is healthy. Um, but, you know, a healthy body weight, certainly where you're in somewhere in the range of, you know, 10 to 20% for a male or, you know, 18 to 28% for a female, anywhere in that range. I think that is much more uh, that, that's, that's probably where most people can get to and hang out, uh, depending on their individual genetics, background, etc., age, the whole nine yards. Um, and yeah, the goal is to get to a place where you do, you're doing all the things that you, you learn to do those first three, first three stages without tracking it and without putting any more effort than you would on a daily basis than brushing your teeth. Um, do I think that's instinctive eating? No, I think that is, uh, habit change and I think that's uh, there There may always be a few things you need to track, but the goal is to track as few things as possible to get to that maintenance stage and then to have the skills uh, for specifically for, say, a bodybuilder or a strength athlete to increase your weight if need be or to be able to reverse and, and go, go back a little bit and even purposely step back into phase three if you need to cut a fair amount of weight like a contest prep, uh, but doing things like being a little more full at each meal like that, that, that's basically how I went through how from around 2015 to 2017, I've gone from hanging around 93 kilos to hanging around a hundred kilos at pretty good body comp. I've put on a fair amount of muscle This Well, a finished my PhD, so I was able to train a lot harder and a lot more, um, and get better sleep. Uh, but B is I've been trying to be full at each meal. I've been trying to overeat a little bit, but I haven't been tracking, um, and just kind of letting that kind of progress itself. And over two years, I've, you know, put on about seven kilos, probably four or five of which are muscle. So I think having that skill is, is important to be able to, to, uh, use those hunger and fullness cues to modify your intake, um, and not have to always track. Um uh, but, but yeah, like I said, if you're trying to cut from the 93s, to the 83s, or if you're trying to get on stage, you will probably need to go fully from, you know, that, that kind of that fourth level back to level three, where you're, eating by the numbers and and kind of doing it skillfully and on the fly, but still you're not focusing on hunger when you're trying to get to stage condition.
0: Awesome, man. And obviously the model has been out, so this implementing a flexible diet model that we've been talking about for the last 50-odd minutes has been out since the first and second issue of Math. Obviously you've seen – other practitioners you know people like myself take this model try to apply it um, what have you seen uh, to be you know the success issues any drawbacks to you know what you've put out because obviously every system has flaws and isn't perfect so what do you see to be areas that could be improved based on how people have adopted this system
1: oh it's perfect there's no no problems <laughs> no, actually, I wanted to ask you that because I think one thing I, I've come to realize over time as I talk to more and more fitness professionals is that after you get a profile and you are visible online, you start to attract people who resonate with your approaches and who have a level of belief in that you are skilled at what you do and, and you're helpful. I so think- I think, well, there you go. So I don't <laughs> know why you even have me on. <laughs> but like. You have a you start to have a placebo effect uh, and a selection bias, and those two things combined tend to reinforce what you 're already doing so this has been a relatively successful system for me um for the most part, uh, but I am actually very curious to hear from you um as you've tried adopting something that you've gotten from outside of your own your own head you know obviously a lot of things probably resonate with you and you've adapted and put your own spin on it. but I would love to hear where you think. Uh, there are potential areas for modification or individualization or even full-on change in uh, in the model with your experience working with with your clients.
0: Yeah, well, um, yeah, I found the most difficult part is actually finding out where somebody fits within Mm. the four phases because I don't think you can easily distinguish, oh, you're phase one, let's just start here. Oh, your phase two cool, we start here. I think the hardest part is like having a set of criteria um or that's what I was speaking to you about before we started recording was like changing my questionnaires so that I could mm. identify and address more accurately where people would fit within the four phases and also basing that on their goals. um I think yeah, being able to have a better System before the system, so to speak, to yeah determine where people sit has been something I guess I've been struggling with because mm. people are you know probably fitting within the first three phases for the most part it's like they could really go into either one and clearly defining the objective and you know the utility of a certain nutritional approach, whether it's a food plan um you know tracking calories, proteining calories, whatever it is I think being able to find out what you're trying to achieve with that person and where they actually fit has been um, challenging. But it's, yeah, it's not perfect, but you just have to figure your way through it, I guess. And, yeah, the other one would be how far off you can turn things in terms of the transitioning to the habit-based approach. Like, you know, is there a time and place when somebody gains five kilos over three months when you transition them, you know, into that approach that you say, okay, well, look, you're actually starting to become unhappy now, even though this is good. Do we have to bring you back to that third phase? Because, you know, you obviously haven't learned, you know, the skills to appreciate your body, your hunger, to tidy, all of those things, to be able to swim freely in the ocean, so to speak, like you're still drowning a little bit. We need to get you back. And yeah, so they're probably the things that I've Found to be, you know, areas that need further investigation. But yeah,
1: no, that's good. That 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 actually opens up some some really good discussion points. I think the first one is that I probably haven't put out enough information on how to help people figure out where they are because of the way my career has gone. I started out as a personal trainer, so ninety percent of the people who came to me were phase one, and this we're, we're talking two thousand five. So it was you know, pre kind of, if, if, if it's your macros going mainstream. Um, and then on the other side of it, uh, you know, then around 2010, when we started 3DMJ after a short period of time. Um, it was very apparent to us that people came to us either in phase two, they followed, you know, meal plans always, and they'd never been exposed to a more, you know, flexible approach based more on numbers, or they'd come to us and they'd been in phase three for a long time and they were, you know, macronators, if you will. So, Knowing where they were, it was very apparent and it was very apparent, you know, 12 years ago when I was starting as a personal trainer. But now I think you're right. With the the age of the internet, there's going to be a lot more blurring and people will get exposed to bits of one culture or or information set and not another. So I think it is important to be able to figure out uh, what do they need to learn, what do they need to unlearn and and what, what habits have they already developed, which ones are useful and which ones can we capitalize on and which ones do we need to try to modify. So that 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 is a tough one and I think um it would, yeah I think that's a, that's a very it's a noble attempt to try to get a questionnaire that might be able to figure out whether you're in flexible or rigid restraint. I think probably I have a feeling though you'll probably get a, a higher resolution doing subjective interviewing with each person. If obviously that that there, there's a time and a an energy commitment there that that becomes problematic and if you can automate that that'd be great. It'd be great for everybody involved. Um, but I have a feeling there may be no way of getting around that kind of initial interviewing piece. And then as to your question about, um, what moving to phase four looks like, I think it's really important to point out that even though I I present this as four distinct phases, it's a continuum. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be people who are tracking, you know, body weight and protein for, for a good chunk, which is kind of somewhere between, say, phase three and phase, phase four, um, where you know, tracking that body weight becomes very important, because then you can start to see whether or not body weight's sliding up, and you know, they may be like, yeah, I just don't feel like I have a certain level of control. And it's also important to remember that rules are always in the service of principles. So any following a rule undermines the principle, that rule should be discarded in that instance. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. If someone is happy, content, totally fine, and enjoys tracking their macros, and is able to go out to eat with their loved ones, and their family has no idea they're doing it, it's not a burden to anyone, nor is it a burden to themselves, what, what are we fixing, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they're already flexible with their macros, they just track it, you know. but they like to. like They eat less on days when they're, they're not as hungry, but they always hit their protein target and they just let their, their, their carbs or fat fluctuate down. Um, you know, that person listening to this podcast would be like, I don't feel any need to move past phase three. And I'd say, there's no reason to like, you know, what, what are we fixing here? Right. So I think, um, yeah, that's something that I wish more, more governments understood about, you know, rules being subservient to principles, but nonetheless, um, that's, that's neither here nor there. I think that that is always a good one to remind yourself is that, if the rule doesn't follow the spirit of what it's trying to accomplish, that rule is irrelevant in that context, you know, and, and there's an individual or procedural related, you know, modification that needs to occur. So I think that that phase four is going to be a process and probably the longest phase out of moving to phase four, probably taking the longest out of all three of those, in my opinion, getting very good at phase three also takes time. Um, but it's, it's almost like a skill. It's like anything else. You can learn to play the, play the banjo. It's going to take some time. Um, I don't know why I chose the banjo, but (laughs) out of all the instruments I could have chosen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think moving into phase four, it's going to look different for a lot of people and it's going to, there's still going to be elements of tracking. Like my personal example of, I pay attention to protein and actually servings of, of vegetables. If I'm, if I'm thinking about everything that I keep a more kind of front brain conscious level awareness of. Uh, and, yeah, so there may be kind of negotiation and backsliding between it. And it could be even a couple of years. I've had athletes who stayed on calories and protein for a very long time before they went uh, just pure body weight with audits, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, having a good conceptual understanding of nutrition is not an easy feat, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I, the more I, yeah, learn about it and I guess the more I try to implement this system or, you know, just teach people about all the things we've discussed, the more I realize how much I don't know and how many questions I have. So it's very frustrating.
1: That's that's the nature of learning, my friend. Yeah. Uh,
0: That's good. It's good. And my final question, Eric, is back to the evidence-based community. Obviously, you know, you are at the forefront of it. But has the, you know, scientific movement actually progressed the industry you know, towards a standard of coaching that is improved or are we simply just using different methods, systems, and information to achieve the same outcomes as we previously did?
1: That's a tough question. And, um, I, there are things about the kind of the evidence-based community that, that frustrated me that I've, um, actively fought against for probably the last ever since I've been someone people listen to, to any degree. Um, like one thing that I tend to point out over and over to kind of make us aware of it is that if all the evidence-based community is doing is telling you what not to do, that's not very helpful. Um, you know, pointing, like, I think it's, it's, you've got to walk a fine line. It's important to point out, you know, pseudoscience and harmful practices and things that are actively not helpful. But if you, if you're not helping anybody, if you can't actually tell them what to do or give them a useful system, uh, if all you're doing is myth busting i don 't know that that really moves anyone forward. Uh, I guess it just prevents you from moving laterally kind of thing you know um, and I think the other and you pointed this out very well in the article you recently wrote is that evidence based practice if we want to take that model it includes personal preferences and it includes uh, your your clinical experience right and I think there is there are subsections of the quote unquote evidence based community that basically it's is a peer-reviewed journal article or it's nothing, when that should really only be like a third. I'm not sure if they're equal proportions or what, but it should be one piece of it. And, you know, when you're, you can't use population-based studies to inform individual uh, practice. That's just, that's just not the way it works. Science is not designed to answer that question unless you're looking at a case study. So, you know, I think that's one thing I said a lot is Um, you have to look at research to get you in the ballpark or paint your broad, broad strokes, but then the detail work all comes down to each client being viewed as an end of one case study, or you take a heavy, uh, you take heavy weight, uh, into account of their personal preferences. So I think those are the two things, if I was to be critical of the evidence-based community, um, that, that I think people need to change the most, or we need to keep mindful of, because it's kind of a natural tendency of ours to become too analytical and too uh, rigid is that personal preference and clinical experience are just as important or just as necessary, I should say, in, in the process of decision-making as um, peer-reviewed research. And then secondly, um, we have to actually produce systems and, and approaches and um, and things that are helpful rather than just being reactionary in response to the, the constant nonsense that will always be there. I'm not saying it's not worth you know, being in that internal struggle of good versus evil, you know, and 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 pointing out the, the food babes of the world kind of thing, but the um, you have to also give someone tools. You can't just tell them don't use that, don't use that. That's dumb. That's dumb. That's bullshit. Because eventually they'll just be like, you know what? I don't know what to do. So th- those two things are my only beefs with the evidence-based industry. But I would say, bring it all back to your original question. Overall, I think things have gotten better and have improved for people who are resourceful enough to find this community. And I think that is one of the things that I I think about more often these days is, you know, how do we teach people critical thinking and the ability to discern between good and bad information? Because we can have all the best tools in the world and really focus on, you know, correcting those two issues I talked about and have all these great systems. um, But how do we get heard and how are we seen and how can someone differentiate that between uh, the stuff out there that will actually be harmful to them? And that's a tough nut to crack. But I think that is probably the next area to focus on
0: awesome man wow that was uh yeah really enjoyable discussion thank you so much for coming on guys make sure you check eric out head over to his instagram check out the 3dmj guys mass if you're a science nerd or anyone who loves to know the ins and outs of nutrition and again thanks eric for coming on we'll speak to you next time man
1: my pleasure thank you for having me